0: Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. A president sat behind the polished wooden table of a House congressional committee room. He was there to testify to the details of a private meeting, a solitary exchange between two men whose recollection of events could determine the destiny of a young administration and whether either one of those two men could wind up in the chafing baggy institutional uniform of a federal incarceration facility. The star witness was the 38th president, Gerald R. Ford, all domed forehead and looking like the established owner of a group of regional banks. A month before, the new president shocked the nation when he said,
1: I, Gerald R. Ford, president of the United States, pursuant <clears throat> to the pardon power conferred upon me by article 2 section 2 of the constitution have granted and by these presents do grant a full free and absolute pardon unto richard nixon
0: just 30 days before uttering those words ford still had a vice at the start of his title Almost immediately after pardoning Nixon, conspiracies raged. Did Ford and Nixon have a deal? Nixon would resign and Ford would pardon him, sparing him jail time that he was almost certain to serve. After all, the evidence was damning. Just before the resignation, Nixon had been caught on tape ordering his staff to get the CIA to tell the FBI to end its investigation. The House Judiciary Committee called Ford to explain if there had been a deal. His lawyers counseled against his going, but the president and former House Minority Leader... Ford had once been a House Minority Leader, said, quote, I've got nothing to hide. I'm going up there. As a sitting president, Donald J. Trump has promised to testify under oath. And as leaders of Congress have asked him to pilot his limousine to the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue for a sit down, we now look back at the last time a president submitted himself to questions from the other branch of government. Sunday, September 8th, 1974, was the day Evil Knievel, the professional daredevil, rocketed his red, white, and blue sky cycle above the 1600 foot Snake River Canyon in Idaho. But something went wrong with the launching. He looks like he's, whoa, there's been a mistake. He looks like he's going into the canyon. The ship's going down. Sky cycle shot upward and then nosedived into the riverbank far below. Evil was extracted with only minor scratches. The same day, Gerald R. Ford took an even greater gamble. Now that's a lead. It's not my lead, unfortunately. It's the hot and greasy writing of Robert T. Hartman in a book called Palace Politics, an inside account of the Ford years, which is a great account of that particular period, but also is a good account of just government in general and how things happen behind the curtain. And why not expect that kind of a lead from an old newspaper hack? Hartman was an L.A. Times correspondent for 25 years. He then became chief of staff to the vice president, Ford, and counselor to the president when Ford was uh, named president. uh, That was his first appointee to cabinet rank. Other great stuff in this book, which you might want to read, the story of how after Ford was told that the Oval Office was quote-unquote clean, four hidden operational microphones were discovered. Anyway, back to our story. The gamble that Ford took was first put before him by Alexander Haig, Nixon's chief of staff, just days before Nixon would leave office. It was Thursday, August 1st, 1974. The Washington summer was hot, and the humidity made it feel like a wet wool army blanket had been wrapped around your head. Ford arrived at his office before 8 o'clock. He was an early riser, and his phone was warm from ringing. Haig had been calling and called to say that he had to speak with the vice president immediately. It was urgent. Hartman, then the chief of staff of the vice president, was suspicious of Haig. You might want to have a witness to who said what, he told Vice President Ford, and he suggested that he sit in the meeting with Haig and Ford when it was to take place. The vice president agreed. The Watergate noose was tightening around the president, and, but still the president's allies, including the vice president, Mr. Ford, thought that President Nixon could stick it out. Hartman was a little more skeptical and thought that any urgent development that was requiring an immediate visitation by the chief of staff, Alexander Haig, probably meant trouble or the looming stink of trouble. Haig had come to Ford with the news that a development was going to sink the sitting president, a tape from June 23rd. Yes, you'll remember that tape from the Haldeman Whistle Stop. Very well done. Gold star. The tape showed that Nixon had instructed the CIA to tell the FBI to drop the investigation into Watergate. Haig said White House lawyers were convinced Nixon was now going to be impeached. You may remember last week, in this year of 2017, that senators were quite keen on the Intelligence Committee to find out from the Director of National Intelligence and the Director of the National Security Agency whether stories were true that had appeared in the paper that Donald Trump had instructed them to tell the FBI to back off of its investigation into whether the Russian meddling in the presidential election had any connection to the Trump campaign. The Hague and Ford meeting lasted 45 minutes, but Haig didn't convey all that he knew because Hartman was there. Nixon had told Haig to tell Ford to get ready because Nixon was going to resign. Haig knew he had to see Ford again during the day to convey that part of the information, which he didn't want spread to other staffers. First, though, Haig wanted to get his lawyer's advice on what he could and couldn't say to the vice president about what arrangements or understanding there was for the transfer of presidential power. This was new territory. For this, Haig went to talk to J. Fred Buzzhart, Nixon's Watergate lawyer. The lawyer came laying out everything Nixon could do, and this is Nixon, not yet Ford, Nixon could pardon himself, or he could avoid impeachment through a congressional censure if they could do the work to get Republicans to see if that might get through the House. Buzz Hart listed six options of things that could be done, the sixth of which was that Nixon would resign and his successor would pardon him. Could Ford pardon Nixon even before he'd been charged by the special prosecutor Leon Jaworski? Buzzhart told Haig that he could. Haig met up with Ford later in the day, back at the exec- old executive office building where Ford had his office. This time, it was alone, 3.30 in the afternoon. Haig arrived. Haig sat on the couch and said, Are you ready, Mr. Vice President, to assume the presidency in a short period of time? If it happens, Al, Ford said, I'm prepared. Haig explained the June 23rd information and why it was curtains for the twice-elected President Nixon. And then Haig walked through the options that Nixon and Ford faced. Haig said he hadn't drawn up the options, but was merely passing them on from a White House lawyer. Five of the options were choices Nixon could make about how he would leave or delay his leaving or not leave at all. The sixth option was the one and only one that Ford could perform. Haig asked Ford for his evaluation of the matter. I don't think it would be proper for me to make any recommendations at all, said Vice President Ford. I am an interested party. Ford had been asked for his recommendation, and though it was in his interest to be for option six, he didn't discuss option six. No one was watching. He could have discussed it, or he could have participated in some innuendo. That's nuts. that's not, not I mean, say no more, not I mean. It would have been in Ford's political interest to pick option six. But Ford shut the conversation down by saying he had nothing to say. He was an interested party. Haig seemed to be suggesting that Ford join the effort to get Nixon to resign. But the meeting ended with no resolution. An aside, Ford stopped the conversation when it could have benefited him. This seems to be something that people of principle did at the time. When Nixon folk called over Charles Wiggins, the Republican representative in Congress, who was fighting hardest for Nixon in the House impeachment proceedings, it was the first time that Wiggins had talked about the matter with the White House. Though he was defending Nixon on the Hill, he didn't talk to the White House about the charges because he thought that would be improper. This is distinct from the behavior of some Republicans today, particularly the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, who was working with the White House on the defense of, of President Trump while also investigating him. Before I should go on, I should note that I'm relying on the account here of James Cannon in his book, Time and Chance, Gerald Ford's Appointment with History, which is really a, a sturdy history of the Ford years. I've relied on it a lot in my various Ford Whistlestop chapters and, and uh, am in the account that I just gave you of the Hague and Ford meeting. Cannon is another ex-journalist, which lends some uh, yeah, clarity, grace to his writing and of this account. It's a meaty book and a, and a favorable one, so when I read this next passage to you, you should know it comes from someone who is a fan of Gerald Ford. But for a president whose career was marked by people of both parties testifying to his honesty, it's an interesting reflection on the office of the presidency and of politicians in general. Here's Canon. Ford had a quality rare in politicians. He could come close to separating his own political gain from what he believed to be the national interest. He was not ambitious to be president. He had resolved, when he first became the vice president, that he would do nothing to undermine Nixon and put himself in the White House. Now, eight months later, and having just been officially informed that Nixon had committed the high crime of obstructing justice, Ford still held to the personal conviction that he should take no step to influence Nixon to resign. Ford was personally and morally opposed to making himself president, over Nixon's political body. Ford aides had a different view of this meeting with Haig than the vice president did. Ford told his staffers what had happened in that 3.30 meeting when the two men were alone. Jesus, what did you tell him, exploded Hartman. Hartman was no fan of Haig's, to give you some sense of that. When Ford became president, Hartman, was who clashed regularly with Haig, said, "'Screw Haig, I work for the president,' He used a more uh, choice language." What freaked Ford's aides out is they thought Ford's non-answer to Haig, I'm an interested party, I'm not going to give you a view, sent the signal to Haig that Ford was willing to at least entertain the idea. Silence implies assent, they argued, and said Hartman, I think you should have taken Haig by the scruff of his neck and the seat of his pants and thrown him in the hell out of the office. Ford said Hartman was overreacting, but Hartman, as a former journalist was incapable of overreaction. It's, you can they they, they they just don't do it, these journalists. Also, though, in his defense, Hartman had a sense of history and knew how these things sometimes turned out. You, you know, the, What happens in the small room looks different when it gets into the big room, which is to say the hearing room. Hartman told Ford to stay away from the issue and to check with others it to, that he, the vice president, trusted to see if they had the same interpretation of the Hague meeting that Ford's aides had. Ford said he'd talk it over with Betty Ford, Betty Ford also the subject of a previous whistle stop. The vice president did this, and his wife's immediate reaction was that Ford could not assume the job as a part of any deal, which Hague seemed to be Nodding at, Ford agreed, but said he still didn't think that's what Haig was getting at. In any event, they decided Ford should take the job. This just has to stop, the vice president said. It's tearing the country to pieces. Ford then called Haig. He was ready, he told him, but he wasn't going to get involved in any White House decision-making. The vice president then stood with his wife and prayed. He prayed a prayer that that had been his favorite since childhood. "'Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding.'" In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. The next day, Ford asked to see James St. Clair, one of the White House lawyers. Ford asked about the memo that Haig had shown him the day before, in which Haig attributed to a White House lawyer. St. Clair said he had written no such set of options. Ford was surprised at the lawyer's move to distance himself from Haig. When Ford told his staff about the puzzling matter of the White House lawyers, their fears were confirmed. Nixon had more than one lawyer. Ford's aides saw the handiwork of J. Fred Buzzhart, who they suspected had joined Nixon in playing on Ford's unfamiliarity with his power to pardon. They, they, Nixon and Buzzhart, laid out the options before Ford to push him down that road and had Haig then carry the message, perhaps even unwittingly, so that Haig wouldn't be implicated in the nixon Buzzhart plan. He would have deniability. For Hartman, there was no doubt that Nixon was taking advantage of his front long friendship with Ford and playing on Ford's good and trusting nature. Why? Because options one through five that Hague had outlined weren't really options at all anymore because of the June 23rd tape. Nixon couldn't exercise options that allowed him to stay in office. he just couldn't stay in office. Nixon had to resign and the evidence meant he was likely to face prosecution so they were really focused on option six because of the only available, exit route for Nixon. Still, Ford trusted Haig and thought Haig had presented him with options without ulterior motives. Here's another gloss on it, though. So Haig, let's say Haig, Haig's trying desperately to get Nixon to resign because he doesn't want to drag the country and the administration through a long and ugly and losing impeachment trial. So he's trying also, there's another thing, he's trying to avoid the interim spectacles Um, if, if, if Nixon delays resigning Interim spectacles could pop up, like large revolts from Republican lawmakers that might have closed off other options by making it pol- the political risks of granting Nixon clemency or a pardon too great. So get the thing done before it becomes even more politically radioactive. So what if, what if Haig, pushing to get Nixon to resign, had overstated Ford's willingness to pardon Nixon as a way to get Nixon to go quietly into the night carrying his burglar's bag? Whatever Haig did, it worked. Nixon resigned. Almost immediately, Ford faced questions about whether he would pardon Nixon, and the president said he retained the right to use his pardon power, which kept the issue alive, uh, but didn't do much more than that. The argument against pardoning Nixon was that he didn't deserve a pardon more than the other defendants, and a president is not above the law. The American Bar Association passed a resolution saying that the law must be applied impartially, regardless of the position or status of any individual alleged to have violated the law. On the other hand, The argument for pardoning Nixon was that he'd suffered enough. Vice President Rockefeller, who was a Nixon rival and foe, said, let him go. He's suffered enough. According to Andrew Downer Crane, in the history of the Ford presidency, some of the best advice came from Ford's military aide. Crane's book, On the Ford Presidency, is another one. That's Andrew Downer Crane, is another one that I uh, rely on quite a lot. Anyway, Ford's military aide, Bob Barrett, on why Ford should stop the Watergate business. We're all Watergate junkies, he said. Some of us are mainlining. Some of us are sniffing. Some of us are lacing it with something else, at which point the president should maybe have wondered about his military aide's highly specific analogy. Anyway, back to the analogy. But all of us are hooked. This will go on and on unless someone steps in and says that we as a nation must go cold turkey. Otherwise, we'll die of an overdose. Ford was also desperate to close the damn door and move on so he could get to the business of being president. Here's Ford. I was called on to spend 25% of my time in the Oval Office listening to the Department of Justice and my White House counsel as to what I should do with Mr. Nixon's tapes and papers. That's a side part of this uh, narrative, which I'm not going to get into. But it was a bedevilment of the Watergate stuff that he was hoping to get rid of as a part of closing the entire door on Watergate. I finally decided, this is Ford again, I finally decided the only way to spend 100% of my time on the serious problems of the federal government and 30 million citizens was to get rid of the time, It must. Be, he must have meant 300 million citizens, and was to get rid of the time spent on Mr. Nixon's tapes and papers. To do that, I pardoned Mr. Nixon, got his problems off my White House desk so I could spend all of my time on the nation's problems at home and abroad. And that was his thinking. Well, he lets his aides in on the final decision, calls him into the Oval Office. Tells him what's up, and here's how Hartman recounts his immediate reaction. There is an antique clock on the Oval Office wall, just to the right of the principal entry door. I don't know its history, but it must have overheard many state secrets. Its pendulum ticks loudly. At this moment, it shattered the silence like a burst of machine gun fire. tiny bit overwritten there, but that clock, I think, is the same clock that uh, former FBI director James Comey mentioned several times in his account of Oval Office activities. So that clock has seen a lot indeed. Now that Ford had made the decision, the next turtle was getting Nixon on board. Legal precedent outlined in, by in Burdick v. United States held that accepting a pardon, quote, carries an imputation of guilt, acceptance, comma, a confession of it. So that was going to be tough. You had to get Nixon to admit the guilt. Benton Becker was Ford's emissary to Nixon. He visited Nixon in San Clemente, California, where he negotiated with Nixon's former press secretary, Ron Ziegler, and Herbert Jack Miller, a former Justice Department official and one of the founders of one of Washington's great white-collar crime defense firms. So Buzz Hart, the lawyer, is off stage Now we've got a private lawyer, Jack Miller, involved in the case. And he's Nixon's private lawyer. He'd also represented others in the Watergate matter. Well, the three men, that's to say Beckert, Ziegler, and Miller, a famous triple play combination as well, went over this whole announcement line by line with Miller and Ziegler leaving periodically to go check in with the ex-president. The most the man in the other room was willing to say, according to Crane's account of all of this, was that the demands of his office had caused him to rely too much on his staff. Well, that wasn't good enough. That wasn't an admission of anything. So after a few more rounds, because the, the deal is you want the admission from Nixon because if the pardon's going to work as a political matter to shut the door on Watergate, you have to shut the door on Watergate, which means that the people who will be outraged at the pardon will perhaps be less outraged if Nixon says, yes, I did it all, I'm totally to blame. Anyway, a few more rounds go on with Becker, Miller, and Ziegler. And the best they could do is to get the former president, Nixon, to acknowledge that he was, quote, wrong in not acting more decisively and more forthrightly in dealing with the Watergate scandal, particularly when it reached the judicial stage, period, close quote. Not exactly a full hangout, but it was best they were going to get. So then Becker finally goes in to see the president after all this negotiating with his men. And he was struck by Nixon's appearance again, (laughs) quoting from crane here, my first impression said Becker and the one that continues with me to this day unhappily one of was one of freakish grotesqueness. His arms and body were so thin and frail as to project an image of a head size disproportionate to a body. I met a man whom I might more reasonably expect to meet in an octogenarian nursing home. He was old Had I never known of the man before and met him for the first time, I would have estimated his age to be 85. According to Becker's account, Nixon drifted in and out of consciousness as they discussed the announcement that was to accompany the pardon. Uh, And then Nixon said this to him. Mr. Becker, wait a moment, please. You have been so fair and thoughtful that I want to give you something, but I don't have any more. They took it all from me. Everything I had is gone. I tried to get you a presidential tie pin with my name on it, but I didn't even have any of them anymore. There's nothing left from my presidency. I asked Pat, his wife, To get you these, Nixon then opened a desk drawer and gave Becker two small white boxes. From my personal jewelry box, Nixon said, there aren't any more of these in the world. You have got the last one. Becker took the boxes, which contained a presidential tie pin and two presidential cufflinks. So it's something, the way history sees these things. In Becker's obit, it says that he believed the statement from the president that he had worked out in San Clemente on that day, quote, represents an acknowledgment of obstruction of justice. But in Nixon lawyer Miller's obituary, it says that he negotiated Nixon's unconditional pardon, which suggests that the admission of guilt was not a condition of getting the pardon. But then there was one last switchback in the Nixon branch of the drama. Nixon had second thoughts. He called his lawyer Miller... And uh, this quote is attributed to him. I'd just as soon go through the agony of a trial so we can scrape away at least all the false charges and fight it out on those where there may be a doubt. Miller urged Nixon to drop this line of thinking and accept the pardon. Nixon did, but his pressman tried yet again to water down the statement of guilt. He, Ziegler, was unsuccessful. At 11.05 on the morning of Sunday, September 8th, Ford appeared on American television screens and announced the pardon from behind his Oval Office desk. I have come to a decision which I felt I should tell you and all of my fellow American citizens as soon as I was certain in my own mind and in in my own conscience that it is the right thing to do.
1: I have learned already in this office that the difficult decisions always come to this desk. I must admit that many of them do not look at all the same as the hypothetical questions that I have answered freely and perhaps too fast on previous occasions. My customary policy is to try and get all the facts and to consider the opinions of my countrymen and to take counsel with my most valued friends. But these seldom agree, and in the end, the decision is mine. To procrastinate, to agonize, and to wait for a more favorable turn of events that may never come, or more compelling external pressures that may as well be wrong as right, is itself a decision of sorts and a weak and potentially dangerous course for a president to follow.
0: The speech tried very hard to make the case that the president had done this for the country, but the country was angry with Nixon, and and despite the president's argument that a long, brutal trial would rouse old partisan passions and rend the cloth of unity more, the audience misheard vice president, now president, Ford's message.
1: The facts as I see them are that a former President of the United States, instead of enjoying equal treatment with any other citizen accused of violating the law, would be cruelly and excessively penalized either in preserving the presumption of his innocence or in obtaining a speedy determination of his guilt in order to repay a legal debt to society.
0: It sounded like Ford was feeling a little too emotionally close to his old boss, who he described as a close friend. At the end of his remarks, the president, Ford, circled back and affirmed the view of those who were responding that maybe he was being a little too soft on Nixon.
1: I do believe with all my heart and mind and spirit that I, not as president, but as a humble servant of God, will receive justice without mercy if I fail to show mercy. Finally, I feel that Richard Nixon and his loved ones have suffered enough and will continue to suffer no matter what I do, no matter what we, as a great and good nation, can do together to make his goal of peace come true.
0: Perhaps God was particularly on the president's mind as he had received communion earlier that day across the street from the White House at St. John's Church. At the last minute, Ford had entered with his felt-tip pen the words in the prepared remarks, quote, "...threatening his health as he tries to reshape his life." Close quote. The Ford staff didn't make matters any better when, after the speech, they described the pardon as an act of mercy. Hartman describes the personal anguish Ford was feeling about Nixon. This is Hartman describing Ford. If anything happened to him, him meaning Nixon, and I hadn't granted the pardon, even though I'd already made up my mind it was the right thing to do, but was just waiting around for a better time to announce it, and if anything happened to him, I'd never be able to live with myself. Hartman really leans into this in his book, saying that Ford felt if he didn't spare Nixon in time, and Nixon died, that he, Ford, would have blood on his hands. President Ford later recognized the blunder in the way he had nevertheless portrayed his decision on TV. I have to confess, said President Ford, that my televised talk failed to emphasize adequately that I wanted to give my full attention to grave economic and foreign policy matters. Hartman put it best, returning to his evil Knievel analogy and the doomed skyrocket bike that faced Trouble near the takeoff, here's Hartman. It is not absolutely impossible to ride a rocket bike across the Snake River Canyon. When success would amply reward the high risk, men are sometimes drawn to such gambles. Life is full of Snake Rivers, you might say, but sometimes things go wrong at the launching. So things went wrong at this launching, and the fallout from the decision was right away, and that was the Ford's press secretary, Jerry Terhorst, resigned, believing that the pardon, quote, flew in the face of my own understanding of the Constitution and its credo of equal justice for rich and poor, strong and weak, for its approval rating took a dive from 71% before to 49% after the pardon. The next month, it plateaued at 32%. When Nixon saw the effect of the pardon and what it was doing to Ford's approval ratings, he called to say he was sorry he would caused so much trouble, and he offered to reject the pardon if that would help. Ford refused, recognizing, of course, that that would be no help at all. Republican Senator Hugh Scott praised Ford for acting with, quote, great humility to bring to an end an American tragedy. And Democrat Hubert Humphrey, a member of the party opposite to the one of the president, and a fierce Nixon critic, nevertheless said the pardon is right. It is the only decision President Ford could make. This was a time when party affiliation was not automatically determinative of your positions. Men elected to office, and women, some of them, had their own will. The ACLU went to the inevitable Nazi analogy. Quote, if Ford's principle had been the rule in Nuremberg, the Nazi leaders would have been let off and only the people who carried out their schemes would have been tried. Close quote. This is now the second whistle-stop in a row in which the Nuremberg trials have played a cameo. Some in the party, Republican Party that's to say, weren't happy that Ford had not waited. At least until the November election, Senator Bob Dole called Ford to, quote, thank him for throwing me an anchor with the Nixon pardon. Senator Kennedy, a Democrat, said the pardon looked like, quote, the culmination of the Watergate cover-up. Senator Mike Mansfield said quote, "all men are are equal under the law that includes presidents and plumbers what about the 40 to 50 already indicted and some of whom have been sent to prison the sunday morning ford announced the pardon the white house started receiving questions about whether there was a deal. Over the next two days, more than a dozen members of the House submitted questions to the White House, and White House aides responded a bit cheekily by sending just as simply a copy of Ford's statements in response, needlessly antagonizing the members of Congress. So Ford decided to go to the Hill to testify, to unwind some of this animus. Can you unwind animus? Anyway, according to Crane's account, quote, Ford wanted to show open an open environment, honesty. He knew that he had to address the suspicions of a deal because they threatened his greatest asset, his reputation for honesty. Again, a bipartisan interlude. Speaker Carl Albert, the Democratic Speaker of the House, said, quote, there's nothing more important to this country than the success of Jerry Ford as president. He has a reputation for honesty and he ought to lay it all out. Later, Albert would say, quote, I knew this man. I knew it was not in Jerry Ford to make a deal with Nixon. In preparing the president for his congressional testimony, his aides put in that they had felt Haig offered Nixon's resignation in return for a pardon. It was accurate in that they did feel that way, but it was not believed by the president to be an actual fact. It was their interpretation. J. Fred Buzzhart, who read this Opening statement, as it was being prepared, called Haig immediately. And remember, Buzz Hart was the one with Nixon and Haig who cooked up the six points that went to Ford in that original meeting. Buzz Hart called up Haig and said, Al, I think you better come over to the White House. These boys have prepared sworn testimony for the president that could very well result in your indictment. Haig drove over to the White House. He confronted the White House aides. Whoever wrote this testimony is setting the president up to tell a lie, he said. He threatened to have the news conference in which he would accuse the Ford aides of conniving behind President Nixon's back to push him out of office and to push Ford in. Finally, Ford's aides <laughs> couldn't deal with the hopping mad Hague, so they showed him into the Oval Office where F- where Hague said to Ford, did you read the testimony your boys have concocted? They're going to put me in jail for something that's totally wrong. Ford had Haig write down his version of events on a legal pad. Those versions weren't used in the opening statement, but Ford deleted the portion of the testimony that mentioned that Hague had made this offer because Ford agreed with Haig that it had merely been an offer listed in the series of six uh, and not a quid pro quo. On the 17th of October, 1974, uh, President Ford testified in room 2141 of the House Rayburn office building. He had his message a little straighter this time than he did the public announcement of the pardon. He said that he pardoned Nixon because he wanted to, quote, lift our attention from the pursuit of a fallen president to the pursuit of the urgent needs of a rising nation. Ford described the Hague meeting and the six options and faced questions about whether there had been a negotiation. He denied it.
1: I assure you that there was never at any time any agreement whatsoever concerning a pardon to Mr. Nixon if he were to resign and I were to become president. The pardon under consideration was not, so far as I was concerned, a matter of negotiation. I realized that unless Mr. Nixon actually accepted the pardon I was preparing to grant, it probably would not be effective. So I certainly had no intention to proceed without knowing if it would be accepted. Otherwise, I put no conditions on my granting of a pardon which required any negotiations.
0: Finally, Ford had a chance to straighten out the mistakes created by his first public announcement, putting the focus on the nation and its needs.
1: Mr. Ford, you stated that uh, the theory on which you pardoned uh, Richard Nixon was that he had suffered enough. And I am interested in that theory because the logical consequence of that is that somebody who resigns in the face of virtually certain impeachment or somebody who is impeached should not be punished because the impeachment or the resignation in face of impeachment is punishment enough. And I wondered whether anybody had brought to your attention the fact that the Constitution specifically states that even though somebody is impeached, that person shall nonetheless be liable to punishment according to law. Uh, Mrs. Holtzman, I was fully cognizant of uh, the fact that the President, on resignation uh, was accountable uh, for any criminal charges. Uh, But I would like to say that the reason I gave the pardon was not as to Mr. Nixon himself. I repeat, and I repeat with emphasis, the purpose of the pardon was to try and get the United States, the Congress, the President, and the American people focusing on the serious problems we have both at home and abroad. And I was absolutely convinced then, as I am now, that if we had had this series, an indictment, a trial, a conviction, and anything else that transpired after that, that the attention of the President, the Congress, and the American people would have been diverted from the problems that we
0: have to solve. In a widely reported interview published in 1975, Buzzhardt inquired whether the public would prefer, quote, a competent scoundrel or an honest boob. Washington Post columnist David Broder interpreted the remark as a pretty thinly veiled attack on Ford, which Buzzhardt denied, but it's hard not to be captivated by that framing. It's a fascinating question as we think about what a president does and what is required for the job, because sometimes honest boobs do the right thing because they know that the nation needs the right thing done, even though it might hurt them. Only a boob would believe in such things, which is to say doing the right thing, sublimating your own ambition, and maybe the honest boobs win out in the end. This was a time different from our own when every move the White House made was measured against whether it showed honesty. People were suspicious after Watergate, and that trust needed to be restored by the next president. The idea was that to restore trust, Ford and his men would act the opposite, of the way that Nixon had behaved. That seems easy enough, but it's never that easy in a presidency. Ford had to weigh other things too. A pound of flesh with Nixon's prosecution would have harmed the country. Ford put that first, and then tried to still be as open and honest as possible about what he'd what he done and why he'd done it. Some people never believed him, but history has in fact been kind to the decision. In 2001, Ford was awarded the Profile and Courage Award. and Senator Ted Kennedy, who had lambasted him at the time, praised the former president at the ceremony, and admitted that he, Senator Kennedy, had judged President Ford too harshly at first. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. warms the cockles of our hearts. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Our whistle stop crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who pivoted like Steph Curry to gather the research for this week's show and never asked for a pardon while doing so. Whistle stop is part of the Panoply network. You can explore the entire roster of podcasts at www.panoply.fm. That's panoply.fm. If you enjoy Whistle Stop, consider checking out another podcast. From Slate Hit Parade, it's hosted by music writer Chris Malanfi. It tells the often improbable stories of how some songs became huge hits. Hit Parade's first show was all about how a rogue DJ almost single-handedly took UB40's song Red Red Wine to number one And the current episode is about that week in 1964 when the Beatles swept the entire Billboard Top 5, a feat attributable to a screw-up by their American record label. Hit Parade is filled with great stories and great music. Check it out. You can hear both of those episodes at slate.com hitparade. For Whistle Stop, I am John Dickerson of Face the Nation. I'll be with you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening.